us, Lord. Empower us through your word. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a, uh, a book that just uh, came out um, that the professor, I mean, the president of the seminary that me and Ditton uh, went to, or Ditton's actually going there, uh, Robert, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Albert Moeller, uh, he wrote a book called The Gathering Storm. It just, it just came out, and he talked about uh, the church in kind of the secular age. And um, I want to use that as kind of an introduction uh, to this sermon. Um, that we live in, a, in a, an interesting age, right? Um, a lot of us who are under the age of 40, which is about most of the people in this room, um, we don't remember a time maybe when Christianity was kind of the, the popular thing, right? When it was kind of like to be kind of culturally relevant was to be in the church, right? That has definitely changed in the past decade, right? There is no cultural points that you get for being a Christian. There's no cultural points that you get for being regularly in church. And uh, I do not like sitting up here. I'm going to move down. I hate it, actually. Um, so this is the age that we live in. Um, and there's a, there's a quote in Lewis Curl's uh, Humpty Dumpty where Humpty Dumpty says, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Truth matters. It always has mattered, right? Just because we live in a postmodern world where truth doesn't seem like it matters, it's whatever you think matters, truth always matters. And this was an issue during even the 30s and 40s when Nazism was rising, right, in Europe. When Hitler and the, and the fascists in Germany were rising, the only real person in Europe that was calling it out, that was noticing it, was, William, was, was Churchill, right? Churchill was saying, there's this rising enemy in Germany that we need to deal with. And most of Britain, most of the, the government uh, uh, power in Britain and other parts of Europe uh, thought Churchill was crazy, and they just ignored it. Well, obviously, what happened in 1939, right? The Germans attacked Poland, right? And in the beginning of World War II, even though Churchill had been saying that this is an issue, this is an issue, but people ignored it. This is what's going on today. There is a gathering storm that is happening around the church, and very many people are just ignoring it. They, they think that, oh, we just need to go back to what it was like before. We need to go back to the 1950s when everyone went to church. That's what we need to do. And they realize that the age has changed. The world has changed. Our country has be, been de-Christianized. That's the age that we live in. That is the secular age that we live in. And the first task of faithfulness lies in understanding reality. And the reality today is, is that the world has changed. The country has changed. The culture has changed. The key is the, the society is distanced from Christian theism as the fundamental explanation of the world, as the moral structure of human society. Christian truth claims have all lost all binding authority in the culture today. And the loss of that binding authority is the most important fact. Another way to say this is that our society is being progressively de-Christianized. That is the truth. A new worldview has been placed, replaced, but has been kind of placed or put in that vacuum. There is no social capital to be gained by joining a congregation defined by biblical truth. You gain very little in the world. You gain very little in the marketplace. You gain very little in the business world. You gain very little in your, in your society of friends or networks by going to church or being a part of a congregation. 
secularized, the, the secularizing societies move into conditions in which there is less and less theistic belief and authority until there's hardly even a memory that such a binding authority had ever existed. Basically, people do not want to be bind by any outside authority whatsoever. And they see that as a threat. And they're hostile to any person or group of people that claim that they should live their lives based off a binding authority. God has been replaced with personal autonomy and fulfillment where the goal is human beings being liberated or free to completely define themselves. The issue with Christianity in the church today is a binding authority. We believe that the Bible is truth, right? We believe that God's word is binding not only on the church, but on everyone, right? We, we say that. We believe that. That is a threatening view and belief to a world that has completely taken out God. Carl Henry wrote, No fact of contemporary Western life is more evident than the growing distrust or final truth and its implacable questioning of any sure word. The projection of secularism and the secularization of society is complete, unchaining from divine authority, deconstructing all religious or theological authority. The problem is, is when, Christian, Christ, when Scripture set, speaks, God speaks, right? And the Bible alone is the ultimate authority for life and truth. The culture that we are in rejects that authority for life and truth. They reject all of that. Better said, it hates and loathes that authority for life and truth. It, it hates any type of authority. It hates any type of truth that, should, that, that, that says that they should live their lives based off it. They would prefer that the Bible, they would prefer that God, they would prefer that any type of binding authority would be melted away and eliminated or silenced. And the church is a creature of what? The word of God. Without the authority of scripture, churches are no different than the secularized society that stands on conjecture and empty promises. The church is defined by the scripture and also told to announce to, a, to the world that hates it, hates the binding authority of God's word on their lives. What does Jesus tell his disciples before he ascended? To make disciples of all nations and do what? teaching them all that I commanded them. Basically, Jesus is saying, go out, proclaim the truth, and tell them that there is an abiding authority on their life. How do you think the world's going to accept that? Especially our world today that says there is no binding authority, only my authority matters. No matter the opposition, the spiritual climate, the church must continue to be faithful to the truth of God's word. The church knows what is true, the church must not fail in fulfilling the call of God to rightly proclaim God's word at whatever odds, in whatever storm, and whatever form of opposition. We have to have courage to face the gathering storm. So the, the, the big idea of this text, this sermon, is the church knows what is true, the church knows what is right, the church knows what is to come, and we must make it known to our hostile world. The church knows what is true, the church knows what is right, the church knows what is to come, and must make it known to a hostile world. Now, when we go through a book like Revelation, there's all these crazy imagery, there's all these judgment. We can almost forget the chapters 2 and 3 of the seven churches, as if they're two distinct books. Like there's, there's chapters 1 through 3, that's a distinct book, and then there's 4 through the rest, that's another distinct book. Remember, this is one book. 
And they're all interconnected and they all go together. And we can't forget the original audience by which John wrote this letter to. And what did he say to these seven churches? These seven churches had been, and Jesus again is speaking through John. And Jesus says that some of these churches have patiently endured. They've buried up his name. They've had to deal with false teachers and false teaching. They've been slandered. They've been thrown in prisons. They've gone through tribulation. They've had to hold fast God's name where Satan dwelled, is what one of the letters said to one of the churches. We can't lose sight of that original audience of John's words here. Some of the churches in Asia are dealing with hostility. Others are being swept away by the pressures of the culture that they're living in. Not much different than our world today. Some have fallen into cultural relevance and holding erroneous beliefs. Again, not that much different than churches today who have been, going, who've been dealing with the pressures of the secularized culture and then have adopted the views of the secularized culture. Some have become ineffective in their gospel witness in the particular culture they were in. The pressures of the Roman pagan culture had caused some of the churches to lose their saltiness. They failed to be a light in a very dark world, a hostile world. So churches since the beginning have been placed in the midst of hostile surroundings in different degrees, right? Some were in worse degrees than others. Some churches throughout church history have been in worse hostile situations than others. I would say that the church probably 20, 30 years ago wasn't much, as much of a hostile culture as we are in today. How will the church remain faithful and what are we called to do under these circumstances? How will the church remain faithful and in hostile surroundings? And what are we called to do under these circumstances? I think that's what Roman, uh, Revelations 10 and 11 are helping us understand. Some kind of questions that this particular two chapter bring that are difficult. What is the angel mentioned in the beginning of chapter 10? What is the small scroll that is mentioned in chapter 10? What is the temple? Is it literal or figurative in chapter 11? And who are the two witnesses in chapter 11? Now, I'm going to do this very similar to like Pastor Ditton did last week. I'm going to kind of, slow, kind of go through the chapter as I teach through this. I'm not going to read it on the front end. It would take too long. Um, but we're going to slowly kind of go this. So if you have a Bible uh, or if you have your phone, just kind of open up and just kind of follow along. But those four questions are important. Who is the angel? What is the small scroll? What is the temple? Is it literal or is it figurative? And then who are these two witnesses? And those are the four biggest kind of interpretational questions you kind of have to answer as you go through these two chapters. So kind of the, the, the main point here is that the church is given the mystery of God and sent to make it known. The church is given the mystery of God and sent to make it known. Okay, that's kind of the, the, maybe the big, uh, kind of the one small point for these two chapters as they are unified the church is given this mystery of God and then are sent to make it known. Now, I know when I say that, if you've read these two chapters, you may disagree with that. Because what I'm saying here is that some of these questions that I had on the, in the beginning, I'm kind of answering. And you may disagree with those answers, but that's okay. I think the big idea that you have to kind of take from these two chapters is that the church or Christians are responsible to prophesy and make known God's mystery. So, so we see kind of a break in action between chapter 9 and chapter 10. And so you had these judgments, bam, 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 these trumpets are happening. You get to the sixth trumpet, but then there's a break in action. 
You're back in the kind of, uh, we see this actually happen with the seals as well. After you get to the sixth seal, there's a break in action before you get to the seventh seal. It's a very similar structure as before. You have a kind of a break in action before you get to the last judgment. So we, uh, we see in chapter 5, during a similar uh, issue, when you're in the throne room of God, there's a scroll and then there's the lamb and the seven seals. And the seven seals are these six, these six plagues or these six judgments. And like I said before, after that sixth seal, after that sixth plague or sixth judgment on the world, there's a break in action but the seventh seal is opened. And so there's a great multitude in this breaking of action, uh, the seal, uh, they, we see that there's a sealing of the servant of the Lord. There's a great multitude from every tribe, people, language, and standing before the throne of God, and the Lamb clothed in white robes and worshiping. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see this in chapter 7 of Revelation. You see this break in action, and there's worship. The church is shown worshiping the Lamb. They're worshiping God. They're worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And it's a worship service. They're glorifying and praising the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The seven trumpets parallel between what took place kind of similarly with the Exodus in, uh, in the book of Exodus. You see all these plagues, right? And now you see... Uh, after these plagues that you see God kind of protecting his people on their way to the promised land. And uh, we going back to chapter 6 where you see the, 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 the saints praying to God and God responding to the prayers of the saints. Uh, during the midst of these judgments, you see, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God told him, told the saints to rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So then there's these six plagues that happen. Uh, we get to chapter 9. We see chapter 9, verse 4. Uh, harm will only be put on those who don't have the seal, who don't have the, the mark of the Lord on their foreheads. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues in chapter 9, 20 through 21, didn't repent of the works of the hands of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of God and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or or or, or walk, nor do they repent of the murders of their sorcering or their sexual immorality or their theft. So there's a judgment on the uh, on, on the people of the world who are not followers of God, they're not followers of Christ, and those who did not die from the judgments still don't repent. There's a hardening of their hearts. Which is so similar to the Exodus, right? What happens, right? There's plagues. There's ten plagues, right? Uh, there's a hardening by the hearts of the Egyptians. They, they don't. Work, they're, they're fear of God. They're in fear of Israel. But they don't worship God, do they? They don't repent of their sins. They don't repent of their idolatry, and and therefore they're judged by God. And so uh, again, we have the break in this action before the seventh trumpet is played. Uh, the emphasis here is not the judgment of God but rather the power of God to protect his church. The emphasis in this break of action is the church, very similar to what we see in chapter 7. You see this breaking before the seventh judgment of the emphasis being placed on the church. And so beginning of chapter 10, you see that 
Uh, there's an, an angel. Jesus has sent a mighty angel. Some would argue that this is Jesus, that, that the angel represents Jesus. I don't believe that's so because it's another angel. We see this idea that there's an angel being sent. It's a mighty angel, very similar to chapter 5, verse 2, when a mighty angel proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? It's, maybe this, it's, it's another one of these mighty angels who's come in the power of God and reflects the glory of Jesus. And so John sees this descending mighty angel from heaven. So this in chapter beginning of chapter 10. And he's described in, these, in this very interesting language of clothed and wrapped in a cloud, his feet like pillars of fire. Again, going back to what I said before, you see this similar parallelism with the exodus of Israel. You see the, 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 the judgment upon the world, on those who have not worshipped God. You see God freeing and redeeming his people, and you see God protecting his people in the wilderness. Very similar language. We've got this pillar of fire. We've got pillar of cloud. So what we see is that God is going to protect his church just like he protected Israel in the, in the time of the wilderness. God is going to protect them. You see a rainbow upon the angel's head. This is the sign of God's covenant of mercy and also an understanding of God's new earth. And that God is going to create a new earth, a new place for his church to live. Very similar to Israel and the promised land that is given to them. It says that the angel's faith is like the sun. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth. He is a servant of the Lord who owns the earth and the sea. This angel cries with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Again, we, we see God's power being reflected in this angel, this, this one who is sent to represent God, is full of this majestic language and power and authority. And when he speaks, he spe his words sound like a lion roaring. It says in, he says, when he cried, the seven thunders sounded their voices. Their, his voice sounded like thunder when it was heard. In his hand, it says that he held this small scroll, which was opened. Again, going back to chapter 5, we see the same imagery of a scroll. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on a throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Right. So we see this, this scroll in chapter 5, and obviously the scroll had seven seals. And who was worthy to open the scroll? But only the lamb who was slain. Right. We get that. And he opened the seven seals. Now we have another scroll being introduced that was in the hand of the angel that was sent by God. What is this scroll? It says that it's small. It's a small book. It's a small scroll. And it was in the hand of the angel sent from heaven. We get the same language that we see in some of the other Old Testament prophecies of some of the prophets being given scrolls by God, and they were told to eat it. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Basically, what we were to see is that what, what happened in the Old Testament with the prophets, they spoke the words of God. Now, John is representing the same uh, role as a prophet, that he speaks the words of God. He's been given the words of God. So what is this scroll? I think this is the image. This, this, what is the scroll is such an important part of this chapter. I think the, probably the most important question in this chapter is what is this scroll? Before we get to that, the next kind of sub-point is that there will be no more delay. So before we get to the, what the scroll is, we get this, this interesting um, explanation here 
that the angel raises his hand to heaven and swears by him who lives forever and ever. It's in this in verse 6. Who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. No more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. That's very important. So this angel is, is again, standing on the sea and the land. He lifts his hand into heaven. He swears by the one who lives forever and ever, the eternal nature of God. He, he's speaking about God, the Yahweh, I am the I am, the sovereign Lord. He swears by God. He speaks for God who created the heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. This is the God of creation, the creator of the world. He said that time will come to an end. There will be no more delay. That God will consummate. He will bring an end to history. He will bring an end to the world. And there will be no more delay when the seventh trumpet is sounded. The days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to blow his trumpet, there will be a time when God will bring his plan to completion. This is not happening right now. Right? I'm not arguing right now that this is what's happening, right? That there is no more delay. But when there, when, uh, uh, when, and we'll see this later in chapter 11, there will come a point in history, in time and space, where there will be an end. And God will bring judgment upon the world. He will... Uh, resurrect his people and they will unite and be with him forever. And when the trumpet is sounded, that is it. When the seventh trumpet is sounded, that is the end. The end will be here. And the mystery of God will be complete. History is moving in a particular direction to a definite conclusion. And why that is so important, I mean, we, we as Christians go, well, yeah, 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 we've talked about that a lot. We understand that history is coming to an end. We understand that God is sovereign over, over history. We get that. But the rest of the world does not get that, right? They think the world isn't necessarily coming to an end, right? They think the world is just going to exist forever, that the universe will exist forever, that maybe philosophically they believe that history is just simply some, some action of progress where the human race will continue to progress and get better and better and better and better. Some would say that life is just a cycle of life and death and rebirth, right? This is very, very common in Eastern philosophy, right? History is not coming to an end. History is just a big circle of death, of birth, death, rebirth. And that continues and continues and continues. So a lot of the Eastern world does not believe that history is coming to a definite end. Some would say, like, they'd follow Buddhism or Buddha and say that life is just about eliminating attachment and freedom from pain and suffering and achieving enlightenment. History is not coming to an end. There's no different conclusion to the world. So the light of the world does not believe what the Bible says, that the world is coming to an end. So we have to understand that the mystery of God is God's revealed secret. We're not talking about mystery like Sherlock Holmes. We're talking about a mystery that is a, that is a truth that has yet to be revealed and that God's mystery will be revealed, that his purposes will be revealed, they will be fulfilled. And what do we talk about in God's purposes? What is God's purpose? What is God's will? Well, we have to think about this in the redemption purpose, right? The salvation of his people. 
spiritually, right? If you're a Christian here, you've been saved by God. You, God has accomplished his spiritual purpose in your life that you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that you worship God. But also God's future uh, plan with you, his redemptive purpose with you, is your physical resurrection, that you will no longer struggle with sin. That is his purpose with you. If you are a guy in here and you struggle with lust, that is not God's internal state for you. His eternal state for you is redemptive even physically. That is truth. That is God's purpose. That is God's mystery being fulfilled. And that will happen. But also God's redemptive or God's mystery of his will being fulfilled is the judgment of evil. That all evil will be judged. Right? And, and if it's not atoned for, if it's not a repented of, that, that, that the justice of God, the judgment of God, the wrath of God will be poured out on evil. Evil people, evil institutions, anything that represents wickedness and objection to God will be judged. That is a part of God's eternal, uh, God's uh, mystery of his will being fulfilled. It says that he announces to his servants, the prophets, that he has made known the mystery of his will to a group. And that group is the church. He's made his mysteries of his will known. We as believers in Christ know that God's going to bring a completion to the world and that God's going to accomplish his purposes, that he will save his people, that he will raise them from the dead and they will be physically redeemed, but also that he's going to judge evil. You know that. If you're a Christian, you should know that and believe that. So he's made this known to you. He's made it known to the church, like he did the prophets. And so he, we, we know this, and so we get this small scroll. The scroll is representing the mysteries of God. And what does he do? He tells John to go and take the scroll. Very similarly that we see in chapter 5, when what? That the lamb went and took the scroll from God. Now, John, representing the church, is instructed to go to take the scroll from the angel. And it says he's supposed to eat it. Which seems odd, but again, John is representing the Old Testament prophets in the same kind of spirit here. And, and, um, and Ezekiel was told also to eat of the scroll, to eat the, the prophecies of God. And what do we learn about the scroll? When he ate it, it was sweet, but also bitter. What does that mean? Well, first off, like I said before, the scroll represents the mystery of God. And what is the mysterious, the plan of God is the mystery of the cross, right? The cross makes no sense to the world. It makes no sense to the world. But everything is centered on the cross. Christ's death and resurrection has defeated sin and death, right? The cross, Christ killed and defeated evil and sin and death on the cross and then through his resurrection. Through Christ, through the cross, sin and death has which spread to all men and brought condemnation has been defeated. Hate and evil has been defeated through the cross. That's why as those who are, who are supporting like um, the movements that are going on right now, we're talking about justice, right? Justice is good, but we realize that the cross is where God and Christ defeated evil, defeated it. And so we have hope, as, 
as David said, we have hope that won't put us to shame. Why? Because our hope's in the cross. And that is the mystery of God. This mystery, which is the most important news ever, has been given to the church. The most important event that's ever happened in human history is not July 4th, 1776. It isn't. The most important day in the history of the world is the cross. The cross. And in the cross, we understand the mystery of God and what he is accomplishing and what his purposes are. And as Christians, as the church, we know that. We know that. That's not a mystery to us. We know what God is doing because he, 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 he defeated sin and death on the cross and he will bring evilness to justice. And so John takes this small book, he takes this scroll, which shows the authority which the church has, and he says to me, take and eat it. And so the, the scroll is sweet. Why is it sweet? Why is the gospel sweet? Because again, we know as Christians that the gospel brings life, right? right? If you want to encourage someone, like really encourage someone, and show them hope, you wouldn't just like open up some like self-help book, right, and say, you just read this self-help book, it'll encourage you, right? No, we take them to the gospel, because that's where life-giving, that's where life-giving, uh, the life-giving uh, word is, is in the gospel. So that's how it's sweet. The gospel is life. The gospel is where we have peace with God. The gospel is where we have justification from our sins. The gospel is where we know that we'll be made like Christ. The gospel is where we know we have eternal life. But the gospel is also bitter. Why is it bitter? Because it's, it also says there's judgment on those who reject it. God's design from the beginning was that God created humanity. He created you, right? Therefore, he has authority over you. Now, we sinned against God and we rebelled against God. And then what did he do? He sent his son into the world to redeem you of that sin and rebellion. But if you reject salvation, judgment is still upon you. So the gospel says you have to accept Christ to be redeemed by God, to be reconciled by God. If you don't, you will be judged. Well, the world doesn't like the judgment. They hate the judgment. And so it's bitter. Even when Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, was told to preach to Israel, what was the consequence? What was the, the result of his preaching? They rejected it. That's why he's considered the, the morning prophet. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear his words from God. They rejected it. Hence why Jeremiah even says that the, the God's prophecy that he was told to go priest of Israel was sweet to his mouth like honey, but bitter because people will reject it and people will hate Jeremiah for the word that he was called to preach. So he took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and he devoured it. Uh, I want to just uh, give this quote real quick. This is John MacArthur. In an interview with um, Ben Shapiro, and he was talking about uh, the gospel and about his goal as a minister. And he says, this is my initial goal, to tell you that you're without God in the world, that there's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're in sin, that sin brings death and punishment. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is the Savior who, was, who has provided a way for you to be forgiven by buying you, your sins with his body on the tree. I offend people all the time because that's necessary, he added. 
If you try to develop a kind of Christianity that's inoffensive, that's not Christianity, it's not the gospel. And he's right, because the gospel is life-giving word, but it also speaks that if you don't accept it, if you don't believe it, you'll be judged. And so, I believe that John represents the church here. And, and after he eats this scroll, it says that he was called to announce this, to prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages. And keys. The other way you can read this is that you must again prophesy against many people and nations and language and kings. We know that from Revelations 1-3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep that what is written in it for the time is near. The John has been given the scroll to then preach judgment, coming judgment. And the hope would be that people would repent and believe. Very similar to what happened with Peter, right? Peter stood up, preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and what happened? People were convicted of their sin, and they repented and believed in God. The church is given the same mystery. God empowers and protects the church in a hostile world to proclaim that mystery. And we learn in chapter 11 about this hostile world. And I don't want to get too bogged down because we're running out of time. But what this temple is, what is this temple? Some would argue that this is a literal temple. That makes very little sense to me. Why would God have a temple built that had an altar for sacrificing animals? That makes no sense. Okay? So I see that this is a, a figurative temple that represents the church. Now, this is not uncommon for the New Testament writers to call the church a temple of the Lord. Right? And so John is told to measure this temple. To measure the altar, to measure the worshipers of in that temple. And, and so I see that this temple and this altar are figurative. The outer court is the physical expression of the true church, which is accessible to harm by a hostile world. It says that the outer court wasn't measured. It says that the holy city wasn't measured. And it says that, that those two things are the, the physical, visible expressions of the local church, and that is in the real world, and it gets trampled upon. It gets trampled upon. But we have confidence in this idea that, that God knows his church. That's why he, had, he tells John to measure it. He knows who is in his church. He knows those who are saved. He knows those who will be saved. He knows. And they are under his protection. They are in his presence. He knows who his sheep are. He knows who his church is. That that salvation is secure. In the midst of persecution and trials, God's people, his adopted children, will remain faithful to him. That is a major theme of Revelation. Regardless of what's happening in this crazy world, regardless of what demonic forces are doing to his church, God will, God knows them, and they will be established in their salvation. They will be sealed in his salvation. God knows his church. God knows his church. We already saw that in Revelation 7, 2 through 8, the sealing of believers. Even those who have yet to come to know Christ but will hear the gospel and believe are secure and known by God. He knew you. He loved you before the foundations of the earth. He saved you from darkness through his son. Nothing, no one, no ruler, no authority, no cultural movement will take you from his hand. No hostile culture, no secularized culture, no atheistic professor is going to take you out of his hand. You are sealed in Christ. 
The temple which the angel tells John to measure is the church, which is made of people from all nations, races, and languages, and God dwells in the midst of his church. And this outer courtyard is the exposure or the vulnerability of the church to a world, to a demonic force. Yet God will keep his spiritually safe in the midst of demonic and hostile world to the things of God. And this exposure is only for a certain time. It says 42 months, which kind of, it's, again, numbers are, you got to be careful with numbers in Revelation because these numbers sometimes are figurative and try to say something, something bigger that maybe it has nothing to do with the actual duration of the amount of time. We see the 42 is an important number because that's how long Israel was in the wilderness. We think of Elijah's ministry of judgment with the famine lasted 42 months. We think of also the woman in chapter 12 of Revelation, which represents the community of Christ. They will be nourished by God in the, in the, in the wilderness for 1,260 days, which is exactly how many days 42 months is. So what we see with this is that um, in, the, in, the, in the hostile world, in the, in the chaos, that God will protect his people. God knows his people. They are secure in him. He dwells with them. They are priests in his kingdom who offer their lives as spiritual sacrifices for his glory. That they are exposed in a hostile world. And God will protect them and empower them for the sole reason of ensuring the effectiveness of the community's prophetic witness. Again, I think this is an important point to make here. When we think about God's protection, his protection of the church is not that we would be protected from harm. His protection is not so that we could be wealthy and rich. His protection is for the sole purpose of making his name known to witness of the gospel. Hence why Christians have been killed. They've been martyred. The, blood, the seed of the church was the blood of the saints. God protects and empowers his church to proclaim the gospel to a hostile world. God protects and empowers his church to proclaim the gospel to a hostile world. So he grants these two witnesses, right? Authority. They will prophesy. God has a plan to bring salvation to sinners. Yet many will hear God's plan of salvation and they will reject it. We saw this at the end of chapter 9. They did not repent. They did not give up worshiping demons or idols. And God will judge them for their unrepentant hearts and rejection of the gospel. I think the church is the identity of these two witnesses. They're not two in particular people. They're not Moses and Elijah that are going to come in the end times. I think this represents the church. They are given the mystery of God, the small scroll. They are told to prophesy to the world. And God's plan is realized through the work of his church through his witnesses. What is the church described here, though? His witnesses are described as clothed in sackcloth. They are to mourn the world's rejection of the gospel. Why? Because it gives life, but yet they reject it. Very similar to Jesus when he weeps over Jerusalem, right? Because they will reject the gospel. Another way that we can, we can, have, a, we can have confidence that these two witnesses represent the church, because they're represented as two lampstands, which is what we saw early in Revelation representing the church. And it says that these two lampstands are standing next to two olive trees, which represents the spiritual olives. They used olive trees for oil to light lamps. And so we're, the church is empowered in their witness through the Spirit of God. 
And so these two witnesses, which represent the church, they stand before God of the earth. They stand spiritually in God's presence and secured with God. Even when we face opposition, God's church stands before him as we are sent to proclaim the gospel to a hostile world. It draws its power from the Holy Spirit to build up the temple that is known, sealed, and secured by God. Again, we go out to prophesy and make known the gospel knowing that God already knows who his people are. So he doesn't just send you out there to make it up as you go or that it's up to you to prophesy in a certain way, in a certain way, so that people will hear it and believe it. No, God's the one that changes people's hearts, and he already knows who's a part of his temple and a part of his people. So we're, we're empowered to build up the temple that is known, sealed, and secured by God, but harm will come on the church. Even though the church is empowered, it even says it has power over the water to turn into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire, similar to what Elijah did. We speak of God's binding authority on people's choices, decisions, and wills. That's what we prophesy. We, we speak. When we speak the gospel, we say that God has authority over your choices and your decisions and your wills. How do you think the world is going to accept that? How do you think the world is going to respond to that? When we say you're a sinner, God created you, and you're required to obey him. However, you don't. He has authority over you, but you reject that authority. God has provided a way for you to return to him. He gave you his son Jesus to die for your rebellion and disobedience. And by faith in Christ, you will be forgiven for your disobedience. You will be given the Holy Spirit, which will enable you to live under God's authority. However, if you reject that free gift of salvation, you will be judged and condemned. How do you think the world's going to take that? They're not going to like it, are they? So much so that they want the witnesses to go away. They want the witnesses to be silenced. What do you see that happens in chapter 11? The, 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 the demonic forces, Satan has the witnesses killed and silenced, what does the, the world do? They celebrate. So much so that they actually share gifts. It's Christmas because the church has finally been silenced. No longer will they preach about Jesus and no longer will they be preaching about sin and heaven and hell. Thank God that's finally over. How many people do you know that would actually celebrate that actual reality? There's a lot of people that would celebrate that reality. He will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. The, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and cheer. Will cheer. Those who dwell on the earth is a formula for the whole world. Hostile world. The church will appear small and insignificant. The world will rejoice in their defeat and their silence. No longer will they talk about Jesus. No longer will they talk about sin. No longer will they come to my door. No longer will they, they invite, invite me over to church or invite me over to worship. Thank God that's finally over. But God vindicates his church, doesn't he, in this story. Satan's victory is brief and insignificant. The, the, the witnesses arise into heaven in a cloud. While the church at times may seem, be, seem to be defeated and its weakness is weak, However, God will vindicate his church like he did his son for the eyes of the world. 
And the vindication of the church will prove that its witness was true. It will, it will prove it. When the world says the church is insignificant, the gospel is irrelevant, but that what the church preaches is old and needs to die. And when God brings judgment on the world, and when the church is seen to be risen from its death, the world will go, oh my gosh, they were right the whole time. They were right the whole time. It says that, that there was a great earthquake, and 7,000 people were killed. I like how Denton's been saying this. He says, Noah's ark's door is open. After the seventh trumpet, it won't be open anymore. The time of salvation will come to an end. And there will be a time of judgment. And when that happens, as we get into this, this passage, the world belongs to God. It belongs to his kingdom. The kingdom of the world belongs to God in Christ. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, the end has come. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. God will fulfill his promise to his people. He will bring vindication. He will bring vengeance on evil. And it says that the 24 elders before God who sit on the throne fell on their faces and worshiped God. The way of the world has been replaced. The kingdom of Christ has arrived. His bride will reign with him. It's a day of celebration. God is not simply controlling events of the world. He has defeated the spiritual and physical powers which have held the kingdom of the world. They will be defeated. The nation will rage against God, against his people. They rage right now. The world would like the church to go away. It would like the Bible to go away. But the rage will be silenced. It will be silenced. God will bring his wrath, but his children, his people, both small and great, will be rewarded. God's temple and heaven were opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen in the temple, and there was flashes of lightning and rumbling and thunder and earthquake and great hail. Which is so interesting about the end of this passage, it takes us back to the throne of God. That's the reward, is God. To dwell in his holy home, to be with him in peace and rest, that is the reward. That's the reward for his church, for his people. That we will have a holy abode with God, his sanctuary, which the Lord has established. And you and I, everyone in this room is a Christian, every Christian in the world, are his witnesses to announce to this world that there is salvation from God's wrath and his son, like the Ninevites at the time of Jonah who heard the warning of God's judgment and repented, the world must hear, many will hate you. They will hate you, 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 you. They will hate you for saying this. They will hate me for saying the truth and telling the truth. But it is the truth. The mystery of God will be fulfilled and the time is running out. It's running out. This is not a circular time history. We're going to go back and repeat the same thing over and over again. Time is linear and it's coming to an end. And we are tasked in a hostile world to make it known. Because why? We know. We know the truth. We know the mysteries of God. We know what's going to happen. And God has tasked us to make it known. I'm going to end with this. I was watching a YouTube video. I like Conan O'Brien. It's probably my favorite Tonight Show. I don't even watch it. I just watch YouTube videos, right? No one watches anything anymore. They just watch it on YouTube. 
Um, but he was having a conversation with someone, and they were talking about the art of conversations. And they made the point, he said, conversations are dead. Because um, what ends up happening is that people do podcasts, and, and they don't actually, people don't actually talk anymore. We get on Facebook or whatever, we don't, we don't actually talk about our differences and the issues that we have. We don't ever talk. And they talked about in this conversation, he says that he, he hears from all these comedians who, who want to push the envelope, who want to be edgy. Right? He says that they want to do these crazy things, these crazy comedic uh, acts or all these crazy things on stage. And they want to be edgy. And he makes the point, he says, you know what's edgy today? What's edgy, what's pushing the envelope is actually sitting down and having a conversation. Like that's the most edgy thing that you can do in the world today. It's actually sit down in front of another person and actually have a conversation. What is edgy for the church? What's edgy for the church is not doing live stream, okay? Being edgy in the church is not having rock and roll music with lights flashing everywhere. That's not edgy. It's not. We like to think that that's edgy, that that's pushing the envelope. That's not pushing the envelope. What is crazy for the church to do today? What is crazy for a church like this to do today? Have conversations about the gospel. That's the most controversial thing that you could possibly do with your life. The most controversial thing you can do in your week is not post something on Facebook. The most controversial thing that you can do is to actually sit down with a person and talk. You realize that? That's the most edgy thing that you possibly can do with your week. Preaching the Bible, discipling people through the Bible, making an appointment with a friend and encouraging them in the gospel. The world will hate you for that. Your friend might hate you for that. There's a storm that's gathering. The world is hostile to what we believe. They want you to shut up, but you can't do it. You can't. You can't stay silent. Why? Because you know the truth. You know the mystery of God. You know how the story is going to end. You know that the Bible is the authority. You know that the gospel is the only way to salvation. And without Christ, a person has no hope. You know how to be on the right side of history. You have to speak. You have to have the conversation. They may hate you for it. They actually may despise you for it. But you know the truth. You do. And you have to make it known. You have to. In this gathering storm of hostility... That the world hates the church. It hates the Bible. It hates the authority of God's word. It hates what you believe. That is the world that we live in today. And it's going to get worse. The storm is going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And because of that, we still are tasked to have the conversations. To talk about the gospel. To make known what the truth is. That's just the fact. And God will protect us. God will empower us. And God will use us to make his name known. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this, this beautiful word, as difficult passage that it is. But Lord, that you have given your church authority, that you have made us your agent in the world to make known your 